Welcome to the 206.com podcast. I am your host, Mark Morin, and you are listening to Diversity in Film, a 206 podcast series. This podcast series features in-depth interviews with filmmakers and industry experts discussing the topic of diversity in film. Look for episodes featuring director and activist Lin Chen, director and producer Emily Ting, executive director of the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian Hua, rapper Lex the Lexicon Artist, podcast host and film critic Isabella L. Price, world-renowned Disney film producer Don Hahn, director of marketing for Smart House Creative Amy Simon, film critic and podcaster The People's Critic Tim Hall, lifestyle blogger and film critic Aaron Hunley, actor, activist, and model Anna Lynn McCord. Thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the 206.com Diversity in Film podcast. We are discussing a movie called Thousand Pieces of Gold. I am here with director Nancy Kelly. Hello, Nancy. Hi. Editor and filmmaker Kenji Yamamoto. Hello, Kenji. Hello. And I also have the star of the movie, Miss Rosalind Chow. How are you, Rosalind? Good, thank you. Now, the movie was released in 1991, and it is based off of a book that tells the real-life story of Lalu, a young Chinese woman who was basically trafficked from China to the U.S. Now, Nancy and Kenji, could you describe the movie a little bit more and what it meant for the two of you to make this film? It's the story of a young Chinese woman whose father sells her. She ends up in a mining town in Idaho, and, um, and it's really the story of her empowerment And I found the novel when I was out touring with my documentary, Cowgirls. And when I saw the cover, it was like, oh, I don't know anything about Chinese women in the West, you know, in the the gold rush country. And so I bought the book and I had a long layover at an airport and I read it, you know, from cover to cover. And when I was done, it was like, this is a movie, this is a narrative. It, I know that it starts here and it ends here. It's not her whole life. And I just, from that moment, I wanted to make it. And when I got home, I showed it to Kenji and he was- I was up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, because it was an immigration story and it was about a person coming to this country, mm-hmm. as many immigrants do, not knowing anything about the culture and it, and, also, it being a, a woman's story and an enslaved person, so it, it really encompassed a lot of themes. And it was based on a true story, a real person that lived. So that was a very exciting sort of premise, that it was truly based on a, on a real person. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Now, Rosalind, how did you become involved in the movie? And then what stood out to you about the movie as an opportunity? I first got involved in the film when uh, I did a play at uh, the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles, and the director, Laura, or the casting director, Laura Kennedy, had seen me in it and brought me in to audition for Nancy and Kenji. And 
prior to auditioning, they sent the script and they sent a documentary that Nancy had made called Cowgirls, right? And I thought she was, uh, the documentary was wonderful. So I, I could see that she was a wonderful filmmaker, seriously. And then the script, I mean, come on, you know, especially <laughs> 30 years ago, you know, she's, it's a true story. All the things you laid out, I mean, it's an actor's dream come true. And especially, you know, somebody just starting out, it's a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, you had done some work in TV and some films prior to this movie, but was this your first starring role? Yes, it was my first starring role. Most of my other roles prior to that, I'd been an adjunct to the lead story, mm. whatever that may be. So this was my first serious movie. And, you know, I don't know that I was up to the task at the time, but <laughs> I did learn a lot. and. I, I feel like now looking back, of course, there are things I know I could do better, but <laughs> nobody would hire me at my age, you know, a woman in her 50s to play Lalu. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like it was really timing, almost like you were meant to play that role. So I'm glad that you were able to take that on. Now, Nancy, as a female director, Kenji as an Asian American filmmaker, and Rosalind as both a woman and an Asian American. Talk about each of your experiences with making this movie just in that context. Well, I would say producerally, uh, we were the oddballs in Hollywood. Asian American producer, female director, very short, from Northern California, not from Hollywood, <laughs> trying to pitch our, our story and raise monies, and we were just not going to fit in. So we, kind of knew immediately that we we had to raise the monies ourselves independently. It was the only way to assure that Nancy would be directing, that I would be involved as a producer and as an editor, and that we would have creative control on the project instead of um, having uh, someone else be cast as, as La Lu other than a Chinese person, a Chinese actor. It was very difficult, not to say that it's difficult still to, to raise monies and to make a independent film. Right. It's certainly, uh, times have changed though, which is really heartening for both, for all of us, I think, that there's a little bit more awareness for films that have diversity, that may have an interesting storyline. Well, you know, I don't know if I think times have changed enough that, <laughs> I mean, I'm in the middle of writing a screenplay right now, you know, woman in the lead, me directing, and I have to say that I, feel like we're going to be out there raising the money independently. I just think I'm not one of the famous women directors, you know. But I, I think the other thing was the, the film that we were trying to sell. <laughs> it was a period piece when period pieces weren't really the hot thing. It was like dust. And then, you know, like I think if, if it was if Charlie, if it was Charlie's story, if he was the lead, it would have been different because they could have at least imagined putting some A-list actor in the in the lead role. And also, you know, that I was insistent on directing and I had so little experience. And it really wasn't until American Playhouse came along and there they were sort of a came out of um, PBS, right? And their mission was put people in front of and behind the camera who aren't usually there. You know, Lindsay Law and Lynn Holst from American Playhouse, they were just, as soon as they saw a script that they thought could be done on a low budget, they were in. And they were just behind us every step of the way. Their notes, because they actually, 
we didn't have creative control. They had, they got to say, but they were, they had good taste. They were supportive. Their mm -hmm. comments meant something, you know, so. I have to say that 30 years ago, if we were deciding to make a film about rich, crazy, Asian, <laughs> it would never get made. Right, no, that's, I, I believe that's true as well, yeah. Well, and there, there's a reason that we're still having these conversations now compared to 30 years ago is, you know, Nancy, like you just said, it, it is still an issue and there is you know, a lot that we can do. And Rosalind, if you, if you can jump in on this now. As far as the progress, yeah, I mean, immense progress in the acceptance of visually seeing Asian Americans within certain contexts on screen and with Parasite winning the Oscar and so mm -hmm. forth. But I am a little concerned, as is, uh, you know, as Nancy said, I don't know how, when we come out of this period, how Asian Americans will be viewed then. We were definitely on an upswing, but I don't know. I, I do think having a female director, I'm optimistic that that actually could work in your favor, Nancy, you know, but maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I just can't imagine. <laughs> They would say no to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what, what was interesting when we went to meet with Kino Lorber when they were interested in the digital restoration mm -hmm. was um, Jonathan Hertzberg sat down with us and basically the first words out of his mouth were, these are the marketing pluses for Thousand Pieces of Gold. Woman director, woman in the lead, Asian American woman in the lead, no less. You know, immigration story, connection with the Me Too movement, and the first time around, the you know the film did well, but nobody really knew how to sell it. You know, they 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 decided that their best chance there wasn't violence. They decided they could make it look like there was sex in it, but there was more sex in it. I mean, this was really shocking what they did. They took us as one of the um the the production stills of lalu and um and jim in bed and they cut dennis dunn's head off and they put chris cooper's head on there oh my god all disproportionate like chris's head was like way bigger than anything else and you know like when when rosalind saw that that image recently she was like that wasn't in the movie was that ever in the movie <laughs> Oh my gosh. That was, I mean, was Dennis? Dennis and I, I think they put Michael Paul Chan's. Was that Michael Paul Chan's? Oh, Bob? and Dennis's No, it was Dennis. <laughs> yeah. From, have, um, from that scene where um, Lalu and Jim get together and Han King comes in and he... Uh, oh, I forgot about that scene. Right. So, I mean, the, one of the great things about this time around is that the film's pluses are actually pluses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like back during the time when you were making the film that a lot of the things that you're saying are looking at pluses now weren't really a plus or a negative. They were just kind of non-existent and you were actually creating some new paths. And did you feel that at the time? No, no, not no. really. I, I thought it, it made perfect sense to be doing it. I didn't understand <laughs> what the problem was with, with any of it, right? I just, and I was like inexperienced enough that not understanding meant that I didn't even really think about it, you right. know? It, if anything, it was the, the basic idea of the empowerment of a strong-willed human being, not not even as an Asian woman, but someone who was enslaved and had to find her way 
and how she had to define what home was. I mean, the themes that we saw in the novel were things that we felt were very current. You know, as East Coast people move to the West Coast, to California, you know, they're like foreigners come to, coming to a new culture and being the other, being the person from out of town into this new place. These were things that we saw around us. And things that, um, you know, Kenji and I have experienced as a mixed race couple. Mm -hmm. I remember in the Central Valley that time, oh, yes. we, we stopped into some, you know, on Highway 5, they're just these wretched restaurants. And, we stopped <laughs> them. and the place was almost empty and they wouldn't wait on us. Really? Right. <laughs> so I, till I went up and I said, bring some menus over. And, you and know, and they, they did, but they that's did. what it took. They, but, you know, other people were being served that came in after us and we decided we had to leave. No, we we made them serve us. We did? Yeah. <laughs> well, how about that? <laughs> well, apparently the food and the service wasn't very memorable if that, yeah. if you're... <laughs> yeah. What was memorable was realizing, you know, we were just sort of like, you know, we didn't know. Right. I mean, so there's, you know, I mean, we live in the Bay Area, so we're not subject to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We never have been, but boy, you leave this nice little bubble and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and that is particularly current now yeah there's a lot of different stuff that's in the news these days of you know different types of acts happening and different types of you know just things that are just wildly that you never would have thought would have people would have been capable of a few months ago and all of a sudden it's you hate to say it but it's almost being normalized now yes i mean you've had you've told us about some experiences that you've had Rosalind, you and your husband Almost to the day, the day that Trump started calling it um, the Chinese virus in one of mm. his press conferences, I was with my husband at an outdoor farmer's market and uh, somebody, a guy, shouted at me, you stay six feet away. Oh my gosh. I mean, pointing to my husband and there were loads of other couples there, but he chose mm. me. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was the first and you know, there have been yeah, it's definitely exists. It's it's making a comeback. Right. Um, not mm -hmm. sure it was ever gone necessarily, but it was definitely right. under the surface. And now I think people feel empowered to express that sort of racism. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you bring up is it seemed like for years, everybody thought that, you know, racism was going away and that as a population, we had done something about it. But just in the last couple of years, and especially the last couple of months, it's still been there. It's just now becoming okay because of, you know, the examples that are out there in the media and the news. And, you know, I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole too much during this conversation, but, you know, it's it's definitely something that, that's prevalent right now. Going back to Nancy had mentioned some of the complexities of Lalu's character. Rosalind, how much, I guess you could say, research did you do into the character to really draw out all of those complexities that, that we see on screen of who she is as a person? Oh, I hope you saw the complexities. You know, it, it really wasn't about doing an impersonation of the real person mm -hmm. any way, shape, or form. It was more about getting her spirit to come alive mm -hmm. in the film. And Nancy really guided me through that process in, in a way, like helping me with the research in a way that I still use to this day. So from the inside out, 
so basically she sent me a few books, you know, some were historical from the outside, her circumstance and so forth. And then we talked at great length about the spirit of a survivor. And Nancy sent me a book by Gail Sheehy that really outlined the different stages that survivors go through. And I think that was really helpful. And we also talked at great length about what it's like to be the other. You know, we really, I, I think we, really approached it from the inside out is you know oh this is my impression of a girl coming from north china you know this is how she would walk and talk and eat it wasn't like that it was more the power that came through her from that she probably had in her before she left to be honest right Mm -hmm. yeah that's the one thing i'm glad you said that because that's the one thing that really came through when i watched the film was there was a very consistent strength and just a just a real like her resolve is what really came through no matter what she was dealing with no matter what was being thrown at her is she was consistent through that entire experience during the movie now nancy i'll ask you what did you in the casting process see in rosalind that made you say this is lalu part of it was that i knew from some of the research that i had done when Anne was writing the script was that I read this doctoral thesis about what happened to those girls like Lalu, and Mm -hmm. most of them died. They either died in the ship on the way over, Mm because that was wretched, or they died in those camps where they were just, you know, disposable, really. I mean, most of them died. And the idea that Lalu lived long enough to, um, you know, live on the river no return with Charlie. You know, <laughs> the, the, the photographs you see of her is, of, she's pretty old, yes. you know? And so when when Rosalind came in the first day, the first morning of casting, Laura brought her in, <laughs> and, um, and Rosalind had gotten her mother to teach her that one of the scenes in Mandarin because it would, be played in Mandarin in the film, right. and um, and you know she was ready to do that. She wanted to do it that way. She was just like, That's okay. And you know, she, you know, it, 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 she was not crazy and you know like forceful, but she had a certain backbone about it, and she talked into it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, she but. I mean, she was unforgettable. and It and, really was unforgettable. Yeah. yeah. We looked and looked and looked. It took a long time to say we really just lucked out that first morning because we never found anybody. Yes. Better. And the thing was, <laughs> we even looked at the video afterwards and we were like doubly convinced. <laughs> How can we top this? And we kept looking and no one could meet, you know, match the car. Really, it was they didn't have it in them these other actors that embody lalu as it were so it, it was it was truly something to see true now i'm going to flip that around and after that wonderful description of of you rosalind during that process of you had this strength you embodied the character what was that casting experience like for you well honestly i i did feel like Prior to that, um, I think, was it prior to that? I had had a, another close call with a big movie that they did say, no, we need to get somebody from China and at the final moment. So with this experience, I remember thinking to myself, first of all, I'd seen the documentary and I thought, 
I just feel like <laughs> is my this is where simpatico, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, honestly, it's probably the most relaxed I've been about it because I felt that I felt like it should be mine, but if it's not, there's nothing I can do. It's I mean, I felt I don't remember haranguing my agents about it or <laughs> or anything. I remember doing the audition and feeling like it was a match, you know, I felt like it was mm -hmm. it should have been love at first sight, but if that person didn't want to marry me then it's <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had an executive producer from Hong Kong, and he tried mightily to get us to cast someone from Asia. Right. And we just kept saying, no, Rosalind is it. And um, and he finally conceded, but I, I really, I remember the last bit of resistance and him finally caving. But, um, <laughs> they fought for me. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like they did for sure. So, and that was a, a very wise decision, as it turns out. Now, expanding on the casting conversation a little bit, you also, you've mentioned before, Chris Cooper is in the movie, Michael Paul Chan, Dennis Dunn. I mean, that's that's a pretty impressive roster of actors to go along in there. Describe that process of how those people were brought into to the fold as well. Well, Laura Kennedy, I mean, she's a pretty well-known casting director. Thousand mm. Basic Gold was um, developed through the Sundance Institute, and Michelle Satter, she introduced us to Laura, and the first day that I met Laura, we, we were ha gonna have lunch together, and honestly, before her butt hit the chair, she was like, Chris Cooper is Charlie. Oh, wow. You know, and, and he was, <laughs> you know. But it was interesting. It, he was after after we saw his videotape, of, of which uh, he was one of the one of the last Charlies that Nancy was uh, interviewing or casting. He lived near New York, so it, it took a travel to New York City. And um, what was your impression, Nancy, when well, you saw when him? I left for the airport, I was convinced that it was a different actor who was Charlie. Mm -hmm. And then I got home. It was, you know, on a late flight to San Francisco, and but the first thing that we did when we got home was pop that tape in so Kenji could see it. And you know, we were watching, and the the one that I thought was was perfect was less impressive. And, and then Chris came on, and Kenji went, "Who's that?" Because I mean, we Chris and Rosalind and Kenji and I have talked about this, how subtle he is. That it the camera captures it, but you don't necessarily pick up on it in in real life. Yeah, that's the one thing that I've always really admired about him as an actor is even if he's just in frame, not doing anything, not saying anything, there's still such a story being told. There's just so much going on there. And uh, Rosalind, can you talk about that a little bit, working with Chris as an actor on set? Yeah, he's so wonderful. I learned a lot from him as well, but I think he just finished Mate or he'd done Maitwan. And when I first when we did our first our first day, I remember thinking, wow, I mean, he was so subtle that you're not, I probably felt the same way Nancy did when she met with him, that, you know, you weren't sure what you were getting. I was getting energy back, I mean, of course, but it was that first night, Nancy and Kenji had set up dailies for the actors to go to, and I originally uh, don't like to watch myself, but Chris talked me into going. 
And when I went and saw him on the big screen, I couldn't believe the degree to which he registered on screen. He's really, you know, and he's a wonderful stage actor too. You know, I mean, I saw him recently in A Doll's House on Broadway and he's wonderful on stage as well, but the camera really, it just, yeah, you're absolutely right. Every subtlety just reads on my face. He's, he's so present. He's very present in the moment. He's wonderful to work with. Now, I want to move forward a little bit to Nancy. You had talked about the restoration of the film. That was done as kind of a joint venture with Indie Collect along with Kino Lorber. How did that come about? Like, where did that come from to restore this movie? Sandra Schulberg, who's the founder and the president of IndieCollect, we've known her since Thousand Pieces of Gold was looking for a distributor because she represented American Playhouse International. And she's also just been this heroine of ours because she founded the Independent Feature Project, you know, like 40 years ago. Who knew that we filmmakers even needed that, but she did. And it's the same thing with the restoration, the digital restoration of, of independent films. I never thought about it because the studios have been doing it. It's crazy expensive. But Sandra, she just saw what was happening, that all these films, you couldn't play them. Thousand Pieces of Gold, it wouldn't go through, the prints wouldn't go through a projector, the video looked horrible. I don't know, I was having coffee with her one morning and, and she just told me about it and was just like, you should do that and we can do it for a fraction of what the studios do. I mean, a fraction. So we just decided that we would try to raise, we raised a little bit of money from different people in very small increments. (laughs) (laughs) Very small. And then (laughs) the difference, we just decided to take it out of our savings because it just seems so important. And in Kenji's mother's garage, (laughs) where the AP rolls. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, where, where the temperature would rise to about 100 degrees during the summer. There it was stored for a good 25 years. Wow. After we moved it out of our house because there were so many cans. Mm-hmm. And my 95, 96 year old parents were getting very old. <laughs> <laughs> and it was time to do something about the negatives. And I think this kick in the butt, as it were, pushed us forward to raise monies and get the restoration. And we were not sure that the negatives would even go through the uh, scanning machine because without it being controlled with temperature and humidity, who knows if the negatives would even go through this machine. Right. And sure enough, it did. And it was a really uh, miraculous thing. And And the most exciting part was working with the colorist do you know mm-hmm. what a colorist uh, is? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, what you can do now, compared to what you could do when you know you were making adjustments to the color 35 millimeter, this it's just you know like incrementally. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we there's a colorist in San Francisco, Gary Coates, that we've worked with a lot over the years, and you know, we just sat with him for about six days and frame by frame, <laughs> you know, yes. just, and the first time I saw it projected at the um, Museum of the Moving Image in New York, I mean, when the credits start a roll and Kenji and I were supposed to go on the stage and be awarded this Lifetime Achievement Award, mm. I was just <laughs> paralyzed. There were tears running down my face and Sandra 
Schilbert was sitting next to me and she kind of wrapped her arms around me and marched me <laughs> on whispering into my ear, Nancy, you're such a good director. <laughs> yeah, that had to be just an amazing moment to see it like that, like oh, it had yeah. never been seen before. Right. right, like it had never been seen before. And it just also convinced me that I wanted to make another dramatic film. Rosalind, I want to ask you, you know, you made this movie, was it 30 some odd years ago? It had yeah. its life out there in the theaters, home video, whatnot. And then 30 years later, all of a sudden, what was your reaction to, to this restoration and all of a sudden a, a new life for the movie? I was excited, but I didn't really understand the difference it made. I, it, it's incredible. I mean, when I had not seen the restoration when we first started doing some of the press for it, and Nancy and Kenji said, no, no, you must watch it. And watch it, I was actually floored. I mean, it, 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 it's beautiful, you know? It's beautiful. And it was good for me to see it from a distance because now, you know, that actor is somebody else. Right. You know, able to enjoy the film. Now, uh, going back to what I was just talking about with uh, Nancy, I guess I'll ask the question of both Nancy and Kenji. You've both done some documentary work in the past. Nancy said, you just said that you're working on a script. Like, is there anything that you can discuss right now of what the two of you are working on that, that may be coming up? Oh, yeah. I, I keep discussing it, hoping that there'll be someone out there. <laughs> I want to help you get that thing made. Well, let, let's discuss it then. What's, what's going on? <laughs> it's loosely based on my experience as a young woman following my best friend from Massachusetts to a ranch in the wilds of the high, cold Nevada desert. And um, the strain that it put on our friendship, the adventure and the freedom is called When We Were Cowgirls. But you know, in that context of being strangers in a strange land, it was really hard to stay friends. There were just all these things that happened to us. So anyway, working on the script for that, and it's just, there is a cowgirl like everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's like we sent a story to um, the Cherry Picks, this, um, this online publication oh, yeah. about movies. And they asked me to write an essay. I didn't write what they asked me. I wrote this story about the parallel between training a horse and, you know, like sweet talking a horse into letting me ride him for the first time and sweet talking investors into investing in that. And, you know, and I was so afraid that they were going to say, you know, no, we're not, this isn't what we asked you for. And, but then they, it came back and it was like, we love it. The editor's partner has a horse. Oh my God. So I think that's going to be our, our marketing thing. It's like, everybody's a cowgirl. You know? Even you, Mark. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll, t I'll take that on. I I'm on board. You've convinced me. And if you're not a cowgirl, they wish they were. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Now, Rosalind, I noticed that you have a part in Mulan, which yeah. we, we almost got to see, you know, and hopefully we'll get to, to see here pretty soon. Sorry, sorry to bring that up. Now, I know the movie and the story of Mulan, it means a lot to Asian Americans, Asians in general, and Chinese people specifically. Thinking back to what Thousand Pieces of Gold meant to you, and then fast forward now to Mulan, was there any special significance for you to be part of this version of Mulan? Well, this version of Mulan is closer to the original folktale. When I first saw the script, it was very similar to the folktale that I was told as a young girl. As a young girl, I, um, my parents used to send me to Taiwan to study Peking opera, and there's a horse dance 
oh yeah, I'm just realizing the parallels between Thousand Pieces of Gold and that. And <laughs> so I had to learn how to do this Peking Opera horse dance. Oh. And that is a dance taken from Mulan riding away from her father as a boy. And yeah, so it's, this is closer to that folktale that uh, a lot of young Asian Americans were told by their Chinese parents. Mm. And yeah, I play her mom that I can say. Right. It's definitely different from the um, animation, but it's inspiring. And it's it's definitely an empowering film for women, definitely. Yeah, the, the clips that I've seen in the trailers is the movie just looks amazing. Just the visual style is just so, it's got a very unique look to it. Like it calls back to like the classic, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but in a totally new way. And then it also incorporates elements of the Disney animated feature as well without really going all in on that Disney side of things like you just mentioned. But what was it like, you know, filming that? Did you, did you really get a sense of what was what would end up being on screen? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it was going to be beautiful, just the costumes, meticulous. I mean, the costumes were not to be believed, and the sets were beautiful, the setting. So I knew it was going to be beautiful. I just didn't know how it would all interweave. Right. But it was wonderful being on the set. We're all, much like Thousand Pieces of Gold, you know, you, you kind of bond with the other um, Asian American actors in that experience. Michael Paul Chan and Dennis Dunn from Thousand Pieces of Gold were all still close. I get random texts from them throughout the day. I mean, we really bonded. And I feel same with the Mulan cast. You know, they still call me mama. So <laughs> the younger daughter texts me just day before yesterday from New Zealand saying, Mama, I miss you, Mama. <laughs> To wrap things up, I'll ask each of you to answer this final question. A new audience is getting to see Thousand Pieces of Gold, and there's people who saw it back in 1991 who have a chance to revisit the experience. What do you want people to take away from watching the movie now? I think I, it's the same, you know? I want people to walk away being so inspired by Wagu's story by her empowerment, her ability to not only survive, but to really get what she wants. And also there was something that she wanted through the whole movie that she realized wasn't really what she wanted. And that was um, to go home. Spoiler alert, I guess, but um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a beautiful thing in the, in the story about just the meaning of home. Yeah, and to be inspired by the love story, you know, I, people keep saying we were ahead of our time and all this stuff, <laughs> it's like, no, we were, we did it just at the right time, it's just, the mm. time wasn't ready for us. <laughs> but it's not, it's no different to me. To me, it was, it seemed like the movie that I wanted to see, you know, in my looking at and seeing many independent films there and many Hollywood films, there are a lot of films I, that I don't feel like uplifted or entertained and if you can do both with a good story good acting good direction that touches on things about the human about the human being then it is timeless and that's what i wanted to do is that i enjoy watching films and i wanted to be able to create a film that would be enjoyable uh, not necessarily educational, not necessarily about an issue, but 
you walk away feeling full that you've learned something you've you've gained something uh you've been enlightened and there's some kind of artistry involved and that was our intent in the beginning is that if we're going to have one crack at making an independent film or a film i hope that we can entertain and people walk away and say that's a good story and i hope that people still walk away with that new new viewers and old viewers yeah i i, I do hope that also it it encourages empathy for people who are on the out who appear to be outsiders because like Nancy said it really is a movie about home and you know a lot of i mean this is america's home that most immigrants that are thought of as the other know of mm -hmm. and this film really does i think it really gives you empathy for those who are outsiders i mean i hope <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the, the story, it's it's a very timely story, and yet it's also a very timeless story. So uh, I would just like to take a moment now to thank the three of you for making this movie. It, you know, I loved it, and I, I totally get everything that you're wanting people to, to get out of it. I'll wrap things up here now just by, you know, thanking you. Any last thoughts before we, we close it out? You're a wonderful interviewer. Oh, you're thank you. very wonderful, and you're a cowgirl in height. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. And this is Mark Morin with the 206.com Diversity in Film Series podcast. Thank you very much for listening.